You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to the Art of Craftsmanship podcast. My name is Dustin O'Hara, and I'm here with my brother and co-host Devin. Hello. And we're joined by our cousin, Jesse O'Hara. Hello, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. All right, Dev, what do you got for us today? Anyone can become a woodworker, but only a craftsman can hide his mistakes. That's a that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Anonymous quote. Anonymous quote. I found, but I uh, I liked it. Anonymous quote by the majority of woodworkers. <laughs> Every woodworker. <laughs> I, I remember uh, when I was when I was a, a youngster. I remember watching a family friend of ours do some work at his house, and he screwed something up. And he, he said something similar. The the only difference between an amateur and a pro is that a pro can make a mistake look finished when it's done and an amateur can't so i can sympathize <laughs> with that 100 <laughs> percent. yeah exactly yeah i forget where i heard it as well similar similar uh thing where it was like uh it was the wife of a of a cabinet maker and all of the all the cabinets of their house and all their furniture all had these like mistakes that were visible and she's like why you know why is our work always well i i just don't take the time to fix the mistakes that i make on everyone else's or i don't hide the mistakes that i do i just leave them there so she's like all of the stuff you make for everybody else always looks beautiful <laughs> this is the reason my kitchen doesn't have any crown molding in it right now by the way just a <laughs> sidebar there yeah <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> that's good yeah, we, we had um we had um, Andy Rawls on Andy's a, a woodworker on YouTube and we had him on and Debbie did I think I think it was Andy Rawls you did the um, quote by uh, what was it um, what's his name uh, George uh, Nakashima oh right right and, right and as you were starting Dev with this one I was like oh maybe it's another Nakashima quote and then I was like oh well <laughs> it could be but <laughs> not the same <laughs> I didn't I didn't use my um, intolerant uh, Japanese accent on this one so <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I guess that's, I guess that's not Kashima. <laughs> Have you guys read his book, The Soul of the Tree? Have you come across that? Yeah, I, I've seen it. I have not. Re I've read bits and pieces of it. Um, I think I definitely remember one, at one point um, in the wood shop at Micah where I went to school. I grabbed it out and I like read it when I was hanging out in the shop doing something or read some of it and then never got back to it. But. Yeah. It's a fantastic book. Oh man, is it so good? Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, he's just, I mean, just amazingly beautiful work. Uh, I think my buddy Steve, who I went to uh, college with, introduced him to me originally and then went up to visit um, my buddy Steve in New York one time in Manhattan. And we went to, I forget what the big church is there up on like the upper west side of uh, the park, but there's like a, but there, there was a, a Nakashima table in their like entryway in, in this big Catholic church. I walked in and we were like, oh my gosh, it was so cool to see one in person. Giant book match slabs, you know, like eight, t- ten feet across or something. Super cool. I met his daughter uh, probably, oh, this would have been, I think this was before children. So this is 13, 14 years ago. Um, oh, yeah. I was at the Philadelphia Furniture Show displaying with a friend of mine. And uh, his daughter Mira has taken over the business now that he's passed, and right, right. so they had a couple pieces there, and it's like they just bang out these tables with pieces of wood that any other shop it would be like a once in a lifetime slab of wood that you'd get, and they've just got a whole barn full of them. It's un- it's so unfair. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean that's that that's the whole thing too. It's like once you. I guess like anybody, you know, once you do it and you have the money to do it and you have the following, then you can just do more. Yeah. So it's, it's like anything else, you know, the more, the more you have, the more you can have, or the more like the more you can be pushed, you know, that's the cruel thing. Once you get to the level where you can afford all the things, that's when people start giving it to you for free. That's the, this is the the eternal problem with being a craftsman. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Eternal problem. (laughs) Well, he, he was a, he was a true wood collector. They, They have a barn. I think, the, the compound is in New Hope, Pennsylvania, if I'm remembering that correctly. And uh, right. they have barns and outbuildings just, I mean, these suckers are stacked vertically, you know, five and six yeah. feet deep all the way around the building. It's just, it's ridiculous oh. how much they have. It's it's just crazy. But, you know, if somebody's got to have them, he's being a good steward of it. So I can't complain too yeah. much. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, exactly. And they're still making furniture out of the shop, right? They're they are, yeah. Mira, his yeah. daughter Mira has taken over, and um, yeah. actually, I just saw a couple of years ago. There's a an exotic wood dealership in Oxford, Pennsylvania, uh, not too far from me, uh, Hearn Hardwoods, which is like a world famous. They they carry, you know, you can go in there and get a, if you have twenty thousand dollars, you could buy a four foot yeah. wide, three inch thick, eighteen foot long piece of mahogany that has no knots in it or anything. But they uh, <laughs> they have a Nakashima table that they commissioned for their entrance, and oh, nice. uh, it makes sense why they why I'm paying that much for wood when I go over there if they can afford a Nakashima table. But you know, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can't cut us a break. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're still going. I know it was a little rough there for a while. I think when she first took over, but they're uh, as far as I know, they're still cranking it out, doing those butterfly dovetails and all that signature yeah, right. Nakashima stuff. Yeah. Do you think, um, I guess Jesse and Dustin, do you think once you get to a point, let's say you become more of a, people see more of an artist than just a craftsman or a woodworker, do you think they have issues with the price of their products going way up? Obviously, it's a good thing right off the bat, but do you think they feel bad about it? As in, like, obviously, you see a painting and it's 50 grand, you go, that's ridiculous, but that's how it goes for a famous painting. Right. But but if you, if all of a sudden you're paying fifty grand for a, a bench, now it, it it can be a beautiful bench, but obviously it, it's not. Well, it's worth it to whoever wants to buy it. But you think they feel bad about that? The craftsman or the customer? Sorry, the, cra- the craft the craftsman. Oh, I don't know. I think it'd be pretty nice to be able to charge fifty grand for a bench. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think. Mean, um, 
Yeah, go ahead. I, I'm sure there's some – I mean, like anybody, I think it, pricing stuff is just hard in general, and especially art because – Mm-hmm. Art is is mm-hmm. completely in the in the eye of the beholder, right? It's it's whatever you pay. My my um, what I always say is that whatever you pay for a piece of artwork, a painting, um, the person who buys that, whatever that piece they bought is worth more than what they paid for into them, right? Because I wouldn't buy a painting and then walk out on the street and someone offers me the same amount and I wouldn't give it to them, right? Because now it's already worth more than that to me. Right. Like they'd have mm-hmm. to double my price to buy it off me or or triple or whatever. So, right, exactly. So it's about, you know, it's about the viewer. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think somewhere in our minds, there's this, like, you do have some guilt of like pricing and how high do you go? And, you know, you feel like you kind of got something over on somebody if they take, accept that price. But like anything else as an artist or a craftsman, as you price your things and as things go up and as you get acclaim, your prices go up with that. And then, and then the, the market controls the prices, you know, they're pushing it up. So it's not necessarily the artist or the craftsman, it's the market. So, right. And, I get you know, there's, I think as a, speaking as someone who had their own woodworking business for quite a few years, there's definitely an element of, you got to make hay while the sun shines with when, when you're making things, especially custom pieces, yep. you know, that are a little bit more avant-garde. Um, I, I know I ran into, like you said, Dustin, pricing stuff is difficult. And when I first started making furniture, my stuff was, you know, really dramatically underpriced. Even uh, I wasn't right, right. anything amazing back then, but uh, you got to start somewhere. And then I started right. doing a little bit of work on the main line outside Philly where prices could be a little higher. But then I, I to be honest with you, I didn't enjoy as much working uh, with people who had the the income and the money to just spend on whatever they wanted it wasn't really appreciated the same way it was just another Mm. thing you know and uh so i think there comes a crossroad for every craftsman when you got to decide which path you're going to follow are you going to make things for the everyman or are you going to try and punch into that market where you can charge whatever you want and you know there's benefits certainly to both i mean there's a (coughs) a very famous woodworker uh, named Sam Maloof. He's since passed away. Um, have you guys yep. heard of him? Yep. You heard that name? Yep. No. Yeah, the Maloof okay. chair. He, yep. The Maloof chair. Um, so that chair, I think, was selling for twenty to $30,000 a piece mm. when Sam died. And, right. um, you know, Sam drove a Porsche, and he lived on a huge compound in California with gigantic avocado trees, and he had a pretty ideal <laughs> life for a woodworker. Uh, he mm-hmm. found his spot, and he, he went for it. Um but, you know, I think there's also a lot of nobility in um, making dining tables for people with kids that can, you know, mm. just sort of get beaten <laughs> yeah. up and they're not going to cry if, if it gets a scratch in it or whatever. So, uh, right. you know, right. I, I think it's a great question. And I, it's certainly one that I wrestled with a lot uh, when I was doing furniture more than I am now. Um, and I think depending on what day you caught me, I mean, it, it's hard to make money as a soul craftsman i mean yeah, it's just yeah. really difficult you have to charge some sort of premium uh right. but you know there's certainly a, an amount of guilt i think in uh feeling like people are paying too much for your stuff but you know like right. you said if they're willing to pay it it's worth it to them and you know there's work yeah <coughs> i think that's pretty uh a pretty important thing what you said though earlier was about your your market you know you could market to the people who have enough money to buy whatever they want but then to them it's not it doesn't have the same value um maybe you know in a way maybe it's just a thing and i guess for somebody else maybe it's a thing too but you know and someone when someone who has to 
like bite the bullet to pay for something that they really want, then they they may appreciate that more. You know, and again, I think that's that point where you're willing to pay somebody something. You want to be able to pay them what they you think they deserve, but you also want to kind of balance that out with the uh you know, you're trying to get your best the best for your buck as a purchaser, you know, but I also um I think yeah, having knowing that's that's one of the things that I've struggled with as a as a painter and as a like a fine artist pricing paintings at a certain level um you know you're not supposed to underprice yourself as you as you grow as an artist right because you don't want to yeah. sell to one person say a thousand dollar painting and then the next person similar size painting you give it to them for 500 bucks you don't want to undersell yourself right so but I think for a craftsman it might be a little different um I think it depends on some some of on the the audience and the and the market and you know where you are. Like I said, if you're if you're doing a show in a primary where you know that you can make some more money from your work, and uh, that's maybe that's custom or maybe maybe that's more of it. Maybe if you're going to charge different, it should be more custom. I don't know. I don't know. That's right. that's a hard one. That's a hard one. <laughs> well, you know that uh, that 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 furniture show I was mentioning where I met uh, Mira Nakashima. I was there helping a friend of mine who was displaying at that show, and um, <coughs> this show is for, like, there was a guy from Australia there who was selling uh, a dining table and chairs for, like, 75 grand, and somebody just Shoot. bought them at the show, like, swiped their credit card. So this is the kind of mm. crowd that was there. Right. And uh, my friend uh, had built this really beautiful mahogany, like, large executive desk, uh, raised panels and just solid mahogany everywhere, and... Um, it was gorgeous, and I think, you know, we were coming from sort of middle of nowhere Pennsylvania, and so he had a price tag on it of, I think he was charging 2500 for it, and mm. it was an interesting lesson because perceived value goes both ways. You know, the customer yeah, is willing yeah. to pay what they think it's worth, but also, if you don't charge enough, they see it as being a lesser product. They assume there's something wrong with it if it's, if it's so much lower than the, the pieces around it. And so he had yeah. he had another furniture maker come up to him and say, "You got to double your price for this show. No one's going to take you seriously." And mm. of course, you know, we were I think we were in our twenties at that point, and we assumed we knew better than him. And so he didn't change it, and uh, <laughs> it just <laughs> sat there the whole time, and no one hardly even looked at it. They would come over, look at the price, and just assume, you know, it was made out of mm. particle board or something. But um, right, so right. it it does it goes both ways. You gotta you can't undervalue your stuff so much that people just assume that it's not worth the price that other people are asking so it's a balance right. and, it's, and it's not fun <laughs> or right or, exactly it's not or fun. every every 10 minutes you uh just rip the tag off and add another grand to it <laughs> so you see how high you get i, see I was listening this game before <laughs> yeah i was listening to a podcast earlier this week and they were talking about selling knives at shows and the one guy said that he doesn't uh he, he won't price he doesn't put prices on he doesn't put price tags on his knives because he's it's more about like he said he's he's there to he's there to sell but or he you know in the past when he's done it but he's really there just to to meet people and network and so if someone really wants the knife they'll give him a price he's like but if that person's an asshole like he might throw another thousand bucks on the price <laughs> yeah. you know like oh well now it's just gone up another grand you know yeah. like you really want the, it uh, the uh, the a-hole quotient yeah that needs to be factored into the the cost <laughs> right, what is exactly. the uh, uh, dustin what is the i've seen your knives and I've, i follow a couple people on instagram that make really nice knives what is right. the the price market for a nice knife i have like i really have no gauge on is it like 500 is it 2000 I, I don't even know 
yeah, so um, for different types of knives, so for kind of a bushcraft style type knife that would be an outdoor knife, you know, within, the, say, three to five inches um, mm -hmm. is going to usually be anywhere between, say, 250 and 500 bucks. That's kind of a standardy price for that, depending on the person, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, uh, not obviously, but as as people, if they are um, <laughs> in the ABS, American Bladesmith Society, as you get you go up from um, from uh, what's it? The first one is uh, I can't remember. Uh, Journeyman is the second one, and then Master is the top. You know, as as you get those different distinctions, you can you can signify that on your blade with a mark, yeah, and then obviously like the price goes up. But um, the regulated thing. There's an actual. Uh, I like the potentially. There's a society for this. Yeah, I there's like there's right. There's That's a yeah. Nerdy. There's a, a society <laughs> of people who actually have to test to get through. You know, like to go into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, as it should be. And then you know, and then they can because then then you get to the point where it's collectors, right? So collect. There are collectors that want to buy Master Smith knives, so they'll pay ten grand or fifteen grand for a knife. Um, but that then you know, so use, there's right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's just going to be a piece that they put on the wall because they're collectors, right? But uh, but then for like culinary knives, you know, you might have because it's a bigger knife, and it, depending on it, might be different types of steel and different types of grinding. You know, you could get up into the uh, five hundred dollars, eight hundred, a thousand, and then depending on who you are, you know, I know that um, like Mareko Mamasi, who's a, a one of the top um, custom makers, I think last I heard, and he mentioned this on one of the shows at one point. Um, he was upwards of the like thirty five hundred dollars or so for his knives, and he takes all custom orders and you know has a a backlog. So, uh, but then you know you get the master smiths. Yeah, like I said, ten fifteen thousand dollars. Yes, that goes. Yeah. So, yeah, like anything. But I think a good That's like an average figured, for yeah. kind of kind of like what I do. That my, my type of knives things are you know anywhere between the the two to five hundred dollar range. Yeah, so uh, so I'll introduce Jesse. Uh, Jesse is our first cousin on our dad's side. Um, Jesse is Jesse. You are. Let's see. Out of Dad and I, you're you're the oldest of the three, um, and out of all of our okay, yeah, the male yeah, cousins on the O'Hara side, um, you have an older brother. Then it's my older brother Derek, yeah. and then is it you or Drew next? I can't I remember. Drew's Drew December third, eighty-one. I turned I okay. turned forty in April, so. You uh, turned forty. You turned forty in April. I turned forty in April. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, and Drew will be forty in December. So okay, yeah. yeah. I so that's you. Bit older than him, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then Drew, and then, and then, uh, Jonathan, and then me, then Jonathan, and then Devin. That's right. So all the boys. bunch of old guys. Yeah. We are a bunch of old guys. Holy crap! <laughs> oh my gosh. I tell you what. I was actually <laughs> I was talking to my students today, and I said I told them I was thirty-eight, and they're like, "You're only 38? I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing they just said to me. You think I'm older than that? <laughs> I don't feel yeah. 40, I'll tell you that much. I know that's probably been said every time someone turns 40, but I'm not yeah. sure how that happened. Yeah, yeah I agree 100%. Um, so, uh, so Jesse is the uh, owner of jessedohara.com, which is Jesse D. O'Hara Custom Hand Wood Burnishings, which I know that you said you're – you still do some, but not as much as you used to. And then also creator of companion pipes, which are some really beautiful handmade wooden pipes. Yep. So Jesse, Jesse's also a father of three, a husband, and and our first cousin. So Jesse, I want you to kind of um, tell us a little bit about, I'm interested in, um, I, I know kind of the general layout in my mind of your story. I know that 
or you know not story but kind of how you got into woodworking or some of the some of the parts of it um i know stuff about like the essay contest that you did that won you a prize or got you some woodworking oh my tools. gosh i haven't thought about that um, for a long time <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know how i knew about that but i always that was always kind of this fun like allure of <laughs> how no. you got into it. i was like i knew that's so awesome yeah, i'll tell I'll, no I'll, I'll tell you how he knows it it's from our grandmother uh, I'm yeah, sure, because because if yes. two people she probably gushed about most, other than myself, of course, <laughs> is Dustin and Jesse because of <laughs> of the things you guys constantly made and painted or created. She'd have a, a my mom would have a like photos of like <laughs> Jesse's like work and tables, and I was probably like 11. I'm like, okay, whatever, <laughs> like, cool. <laughs> it is very possible that's how that came about. Yep. So that's probably who told you this. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> well, I can give you the. I'll try to give you the streamlined version of how I got into woodworking. I went to sure to uh, uh, to school. I went to college to be a history teacher, and uh, so I do have a degree in history. And um, got married right after college and didn't want to teach, <laughs> which was interesting. Yeah. I just graduated. And I was tired of school. Um, yeah right <laughs> so I, I had paid my way through college um working as a for a company for a guy who did uh, landscaping and construction so we did some light you know light building stuff decks and and you know small okay. additions and that sort of stuff so i after college got a job with a, a a company on the main line outside philly um that renovated old buildings we turned warehouses into restaurants and offices and all that sort of stuff uh, learned a lot about structural architecture mm. and and just did everything from framing all the way up to finish work, which was, it's re- I I think everybody should have to do that at some point for at least a year because it enables mm. you to work on your house. Whatever goes wrong with it, you can do yeah. <laughs> whatever you need to do. And I will yeah. say, my my little brother Jonathan had probably one of the greatest lines ever uh, when I took this job in construction. He said, "You went to school to be a teacher." And then you became a carpenter. This is like the reverse Jesus career path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> said, That's not bad, John. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this company I worked for, one of the things we did was we, we were in close proximity to Valley Forge uh, National Park. And um, we did a little bit of renovation work there. So buildings that would need things done. I uh, watched some guys fix old like plaster crown molding and did some woodworking on the outside of these old buildings. And so that kind of perked up my ears a little bit to uh, to the thought of woodworking. And then very serendipitously, I ran into a, actually the guy I was telling you about earlier who I went to the furniture show with. Um, he was a college buddy of mine, and he had a wood shop not far from my house. And we ran into each other, and I asked if I could sort of go in at nighttime and, and mess around. And he said, yeah. So I spent the next couple of years just sort of going in there and making a lot of mistakes and gluing things together that shouldn't be glued together and you know, <laughs> messing around on the lathe, which was a lot of fun. And uh, one day someone walked in and, and asked uh, if I could make them a table. The shop was connected to uh, a pretzel store and they walked in the wrong door but saw what I was doing and asked if I could make, I, was, I can't remember if it was a table or a bed. I think it might have been like a bed under a table or a, a table under a bed. I was like, sure. Oh, I had no idea okay. if I could do it or not. But um, so I said yes, and that was my first customer. And then sort of just slowly built, and um, it got to the point where I either had to kind of cut it off as a hobby because I was too busy with that in my real job, or I could try and give it a go full time. So um, 
I ended up leaving my carpentry job and opening my woodworking business and mm. uh, haven't had a real job since. So <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the dream. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was great. Yeah. So you said you were you you guys were next to a pretzel shop. Is that what I heard? Yeah, soft pretzel shop out in Lancaster County, uh, Dutch country oh, yeah. soft pretzels. And uh, so I was always having people wander in. They, they they thought our shop door was the entrance to the pretzel store. And so they'd always walk in and, you know, oh, whoops, sorry, don't turn around. But, <laughs> Leave uh, disappointed. <laughs> that's right, disappointed <laughs> and hungry and slightly dirtier than when they came in the shop. Yeah. <laughs> no, it sounds like a perfect business plan. Like, yeah. it's like naming naming your company you know, AA whatever, just because you want to be at the front of so like set up right next to a pretzel shop. Yeah, sounds right. like a great idea. <laughs> we, we since moved the shop. The shop is now in downtown Lancaster city, but, um, yeah, it was a cool old building. It was, it was a neat right place on. to sort of get started and, and figure things out. But so that's how, and that's how the woodworking started. Okay. And you said so that that was your, your friend's shop. Um, gotcha. So you, so you moved in there and then you started doing some of your own custom shop custom stuff still using his shop yeah so basically we right as i started my business we moved to the shop we're in now uh in uh, Lancaster gotcha, city gotcha. and um we sort of split things uh he bought the building <clears throat> and we sort of started buying tools together and i paid rent and um mm. he didn't do as much as i did so i was usually in there by myself it worked out just about perfectly because he could have this shop up and running and have some revenue coming in from it, and um, right. yeah, it worked out. It worked out great. We had nothing, no tools that we didn't need, but we had everything that we absolutely needed <laughs> to make furniture. <laughs> nice. Uh, and we we didn't have a ton of space, but it, it worked out okay. It was, uh, yeah, it, it worked out great. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so. Where where in the in the timeline does the like writing the essay or the article to potentially win these tools and what what uh was that through a magazine is that what I yeah heard? that was through Fine Woodworking magazine uh, oh, right which on. I used okay. to read cover to cover uh, every time it came out I now that I have kids I don't really <laughs> read those as much <laughs> right. anymore but um, yeah so it was right as I was getting ready to leave my uh, carpentry job and start the woodworking business they had this contest. Uh, to outfit a whole, I think it was like a $5,000 wood shop. They gave me $5,000 worth of tools to uh, right. to basically outfit an entire workshop for yourself. You just had to share a story about why you needed them and sort of your journey as a as a uh, woodworker. And at that okay. point, I was working on a, a bookshelf for my wife and I uh, in a house that we were renting. We were newly married, and um, I was literally working in a like a dirt floor basement with one light bulb hanging from this like it was it was the shadiest looking thing you've ever seen in your entire life and so i had i had a router down there and a, like a battery powered circular saw and those were the, the and, and so a hammer and some finish nails and so i i wrote to the magazine and said i'm, I'm starting i'm getting ready to start my own business i don't have any tools I'm, you know, I'm renting a shop and i'm using somebody else's equipment and i would love to just be able to get this business up and running and you know try and chase this dream <clears throat> so they called me and said that I was one of the finalists and I was like holy cow this might actually happen and uh, <laughs> and then they called and said I was the runner-up and uh, so the the difference between the $5,000 shop full of tools and the runner-up was that the runner-up got a router 
and the winner <laughs> got an entire shop full of tools. <laughs> so I got a nice port cable router out of it, but it didn't quite didn't quite outfit the shop as I was hoping it would. But it was an exciting start to to uh, to my business. And then years later, once the business was up and running, I, I made a big uh, communion table for a church and had a lot of inlays and stuff. And so I sent the pictures in to find work at woodworking and sort of felt like it was full circle. It was like, okay, I'm doing this thing and I'm still going. Yeah. And, you know, so it was kind of neat, but. I didn't need awesome. your help. That's right. I did this on my own. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> did they? Uh, did they? They publish those pictures, or is it just like a? Uh, I don't know if they ever did or not. I oh, okay. they didn't right away, um, and I yeah. my subscription ran out shortly thereafter, and I don't think that I renewed it. So maybe they did. I'm not sure. But mm, either okay. way, for me, it was just sort of a cathartic sort of. Uh, yeah, I'd always wanted to make a piece worthy of that I felt like was worthy to send into fine woodworking, and this one was the first one that I thought was sort of at a quality that was appropriate for the magazine. So nice, that's awesome. Yeah, that was the the most expensive piece of wood I ever bought. I went to that place I was telling you about earlier down in Oxford, yeah. Pennsylvania, yeah. and uh, I bought a piece of mahogany for the top of this table for twelve hundred dollars, and that was Ooh. it was one one solid piece, and I just was scared to death the entire time i was working with it <laughs> right, exactly you're chipping actually, off dollars I, worth of exactly, wood chips exactly exactly i i like i mentioned it had a lot of inlay in the top there was like a cross and a crown of thorns and all sorts of stuff mm -hmm. and right before i started the inlay work my you know my hands were shaking a little bit and um i was actually using the router from fine woodworking which is interesting but um, <laughs> nice. so I, I i stopped and i sort of looked up at the sky and, and I prayed I was like well Lord you better guide my hands here because if I screw this up it's going in your house and you have to look at it yeah. for the rest of time <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know whether it was a good idea to you know give God an ultimatum or not but uh, yeah right <laughs> it worked out okay <laughs> this is so on well, you yeah if it's screwed up it's going in there anyway so I'm <laughs> not buying another piece just more uh, more things to cover up. If, if there's a whole another little funky piece of wood inlaid over here for some reason. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so so um we can jump back and forth. It doesn't matter. But I'm th what made you make the the change from big um I guess expensive wood and furniture and big things to one of the, like the smallest little things you could a pipe. Yeah, it's a. <clears throat> it was an interesting transition. Um, I've always enjoyed making smaller pieces. Coffee tables were like my favorite furniture to make because you can have a lot going on in a very small area. It's a little more contained. Uh, I also had a yeah. two-story wood shop and I had to carry anything I made down the stairs. So uh, <laughs> small pieces were great. And um, <laughs> So I had made a few coffee tables that I, that I really felt, you know, were executed well and like the design was as fully resolved as I needed it to be, which was a good feeling. Uh, as mm. I'm sure you guys know as, as craftsmen, it's all about self-editing. So it's it's not how much you can put in, it's how much you can take out. And you know, that's usually what ends yeah. up making a piece look better is taking something out. Um, and <clears throat> I was, I was, it was late one night. I know my, my daughter was very, my first uh, daughter was very young. Um, and I was up late just sort of researching um, I was trying to design a piece of furniture and I was sort of stuck and so I was looking in the internet just for you know I was looking at pieces of furniture that I knew and looking at lines and trying to get some inspiration yep. of how I wanted to do it 
And I don't even know how I came across this pipe. I, I wasn't looking for pipes. Like it was just one of those things that happens. Um, mm -hmm. I came across a picture of this pipe. If you guys have phones or computers nearby that you can look at, I know this isn't going to be great for listeners because they won't be able to see it, but there's this, pull it up. there's this pipe maker named Migers Kanetz. His, his first name is M-A-I-G-U-R-S, and the last name is K-N-E-T-S. And this pipe called the Turtle <coughs> came up that he's has since become his sort of signature shape. And like... It was just one of those moments where like the room starts spinning and your jaw just drops to the floor and you can't really mm. understand what you're looking at. I had <laughs> never seen a pipe like this oh, before. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it was just, it sort of rocked my world. Like I didn't even know the world of artisan pipes existed and mm. I just couldn't stop looking at this thing. I didn't make any progress on the piece of furniture that I was trying to uh, design, but <laughs> I got <coughs> sucked into looking at this pipe, and so I started looking at his other work, and um, it was kind of like in the space of about 10 seconds, I went from like complete shock to complete admiration to how the heck did he do that to, mm. okay, I'm definitely gonna be doing this at some point in my <laughs> life. Like this is, this is something I need to pursue. So it was really that instantaneous. Like it was like a lightning bolt. I, I just uh -huh. knew like, I got I gotta at least try something with this. <coughs> so I spent probably the next, I mean, mind you, I was, I was still had my, my furniture business running full time. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of extra time to devote to this, but I spent probably the next year and a half to two years uh, researching pipe making and figuring out exactly what was happening and and discovered through that process that everything from the briar which is the wood that pipes are made out of to the stem material to uh, you know any of these inlay materials that you use like these are all very specialty items that you gotta mm -hmm. acquire from across the globe they all come from different areas of the world and then reading articles about because um, when you get into the higher end pipes uh, you know the shapes are certainly part of what makes them expensive and what makes them unique, but the engineering inside of the pipe uh, to create as smooth and cool of a smoke as possible is really quite something. And mm. so learning about how smoke travels through confined spaces and what it does when it meets resistance and swirls and creates condensation and all these things. So I was reading all these different articles about the different elements of pipe making. And while it was extremely valuable, um, it definitely got to a point where I sort of had the the old paralysis by analysis type thing where I was afraid to start yep. I just I was I, mm. I was overwhelmed completely and mm -hmm. um, so I, I had the good fortune to speak with a couple uh, pipe makers who I sought out on the internet um, and I'm sure it's probably this way in the knife community too most craftsmen that I've come across are just really nice people and mm -hmm. they 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 don't love talking but they like talking about craftsmanship <laughs> and they, and right, they, enjoy, yeah. they enjoy they enjoy a good hearty conversation with someone else who kind of can speak the same language they do and yeah. so I a couple pipe makers are really generous with their time and allowed me to call them uh, sort of in different parts of the world and mm -hmm. so I had some questions answered that I had and and um, the the last guy that I talked to his his uh, his name is Tyler Lane um, he 
was the one who sort of encouraged me to just start going for it, um, especially with my background in woodworking. You know, he said, you're going to find soon when you start working with Briar that it's just another wood. Like, you, kn you know how wood operates, so that's not going to be right. a surprise for you. Uh, th and there's a million other things that you'll figure out along the way and screw up, but that's you're going to be okay starting out. You have a, a certain shorthand with that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I will say not as many of the skills transferred over from furniture making to pipe making as I would have hoped, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was like, it was like learning a whole new language. But um, So, so I'm, I'm totally ignorant in, in the art of pipes. So briar, is that a root? What is that? So briar is, um, do you guys know what a burl is? It's like a cancerous yeah. growth on the side of a tree right. that you'll sometimes right. see. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Briar is like that tumor on uh the the plant is called the heath it's a mediterranean sort of really ugly looking shrubby scrubby bush uh that grows in the forest it's kind of an understory plant and um they grow they actually grow underground these burls actually are under the the soil level they're not the roots oh, wow. but mm. they're they're a tumor that grows off of the root system um mm. and so it's incredibly hard work there's no automated way to harvest these things. So the guys digging mm -hmm. them up are doing it by hand and they're hacking these burls off by hand. And they're, um, so it, there's not a whole lot of people that do it anymore because it's incredibly labor intensive. Mm -hmm. um, but the best stuff comes from, obviously it's a Mediterranean plant. So Italy generally produces what's considered the best briar. Um, Greece uh, is also a producer. And uh, mm -hmm. I've worked with some Algerian briar as well that's been really nice. They all have slightly different coloration, um, slightly different density. Uh, but the stuff coming out of Italy, uh, and specifically from uh, really two mills, there's one guy's name is Mimo. I don't know what his real name is, but he goes by Mimo. Um, mm -hmm. He's the most famous one. And another guy named Mano, um, who are producing <laughs> what would be considered, uh, it's like where all of your top artisans get their briar from uh, right and so whenever it becomes available it's a race to to, to grab whatever they have available and uh, yeah it's pretty cool and then when you get to that point you get to have one name like madonna that's right that's right i'm still working on what name i'm going to use when i when i get to the point yeah momo more at stolen so i can't use that anymore uh, i know yeah, that was saying i can't use that one <laughs> um, so What's the what's the benefit of briar over other like other woods? Any other wait, wood? Wait, bef before you answer that, yeah. please tell me it's not like a a champagne thing where the French just decided to say you have to have it from here, or it's not it doesn't count. <laughs> no, it's right. much more legitimate than that. Yeah, forget those French. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, sorry to all the French listeners out there. Um, <laughs> briar has a couple. We have, we have a heart. That, uh, a huge French following. You guys are big in France. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You guys are huge over in, over in France. Not anymore. <laughs> um, so lots of woods you could use to, to carve a pipe, but they don't have one of the sort of three things that Briar has. So it's, it's uh, first of all, the look of it has become the signature. So the, because it's a yeah. burl, essentially. Um, you end up with really nice bird's eye grain and straight grain, um, yeah. which for those people that don't know wood real well, the straight grain would be like, it's called flame grain where the lines shoot, like radiate out from the middle, almost like sunbursts. And then mm -hmm. if you look at those lines from the top view, uh, that's how you get bird's eye grain, uh, which is like a whirly swirly, what people normally think of with burl. 
Um, so that is, is part of it. The grain is really nice. But what sets it apart from like cherry burl or walnut burl or any of those things are right. two, Im two important things. First, it's not toxic, which a lot of woods are when you burn yeah. them. So like black yeah, walnut right. would, would kill you if you smoked out of it. And a lot of the really exotic, nice looking woods, are, they have these really nasty oils in them and they just, yeah, they, right. wouldn't, they wouldn't do well. Yeah, um, even just even just sanding those, you know, exactly. just getting the, the dust, yeah, could be bad. Exactly, yeah, you need to be careful. Bad for you. Um, yeah. So the, the sorry, I should have said there's there's three things mainly. Uh, the two other things are briar does not, I mean, it can smolder and not catch on fire. So mm. obviously you have a live flame, a live ember inside this thing, and uh, once you establish that uh, cake of tr of uh, carbon around the bowl. Uh, it's very stable and it can handle the heat. It doesn't mm -hmm. really crack very very much and it doesn't you know burst into flames, which is a, a nice benefit when you're smoking a pipe. Um, yeah. But <laughs> the biggest one, honestly, for like the people who you would consider the pipe connoisseurs and these like tobacco guys who only smoke certain blends and whatnot, uh, Briar imparts no flavor into the tobacco. Mm -hmm. So what you're gotcha. getting is a straight shot of whatever blends or, or leaves that you're uh, you're choosing to smoke uh, which a lot of other woods do not have they would impart you know a really strong overtone of uh, of tobacco flavor so um, that's a very important element of it um, to the guys that take it seriously so gotcha yeah. um, so and what's the uh, what's the stem made out of so uh, like when you see black. it when you see a black stem yeah when you see that one which is probably the most popular one uh, it's a material called ebonite, which is uh, vulcanized rubber. It's what bowling balls are made out of. Um, <laughs> okay. So when you when you buy it for pipe making, you buy it in dowel rod form. So I get when I buy them in, I buy you know one meter long lengths of uh, right. just solid black dowel rod. And so the, all those right. stems that you see, they're carved by hand. I mean, you know, the little um, um, the hole at the end that's like nicely slotted that's all done by hand with files all the button that you can clench between your teeth all the curve all that stuff every bit of that is is carved by hand because it, 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 it really comes in a straight dowel rod so it, it yeah. comes from nothing so that's a big mm, part wow. of learning how to make pipes is is learning how to make stems actually the stems usually take longer than the wooden part of the pipe um, to be honest, yeah, yeah, I can see um, that. Yeah. So the advantage of that material is that it's soft enough to clench in your teeth, and it's comfortable. Has a little give to it. Um, right. It also takes a shine really nicely once you sand it up to about. Mm. I go to 800, usually 800 grit uh, with a white wet okay. sanding okay. Uh, before you start polishing. Uh, you got to get all those scratches out. And then right. Um, right. one really nice thing about it is that you can heat it up and bend it. So whenever you see a stem uh. that has a real sharp bend in it it's made straight <coughs> and then bent after the because ah. um, it needs to be straight when you drill it obviously uh, that's yeah that was going to be my next question like so how are you putting holes through these curved pipe yeah, right. stems <laughs> so yeah. the, bend, the bend is the very last thing or close to the very last thing that you do cool. for a pipe uh, which really wow. you know has a big impact on how the pipe looks um, yeah. so you got to make sure you get those bends right um, but yeah it's a neat material um, the best stuff comes from Germany uh, there's two companies, NYH and SEM, uh, that sell. There, I've used them both, and I can't really tell a difference between them. There's some right. cheaper, like Japanese ebonite, that often has pits, and it's not quite as rich of a black mm. when you polish it, and it oxidizes faster. So, um, and this stuff is, uh, you wonder why pipes cost what they do that are handmade. The the ebonite is expensive. I mean, it's really expensive. 
Um, hmm. So for like a one meter long rod, you're looking for any sizable diameter, you're way over a hundred dollars for that rod. Um, yeah, right. So ruin, ruining a stem is a heartbreaking endeavor for a, a pipe maker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I mean, I think just anything that's exotic that takes, you know, that you have to, that takes time to get into. I mean, like as a knife maker, steels are cheap. Steels are not the, it, the expensive part of, ma of knife making is handle material. Is getting the pearls and getting the yeah getting that the material because also you can't you know I could buy steel in pieces that are already flat and basically the shape you know the the dimensions of a knife but then wood you're buying in blocks that have been stabilized or you know like yeah. cut from barrels and dried you know all that time and that's that's where the the cost is yeah. Dad, are you using any ebonite or do guys that you know use ebonite as inlays for handles or is that not a knife making material? No, I haven't I haven't ever heard of ebonite. Okay. Um, I was Whoops. I was looking at it and just seeing like the grain on it and looked and it looked like just like a different type you know the, an ebony with some you know brown in it but um yeah so there's two it, types of the ebony. There's, there's, yeah. there's a swirled type uh, which looks almost like wood grain when you when you uh, cut it down yeah. and finish it and then there's the straight black which is you know the predominant uh, probably used one right. now there within within stems also like when you buy a factory pipe from that you can buy it like a you know a gas station or even a pipe shop that sells you know like a lower end factory made pipe um, those right. stems are going to be injection molded out of um, gotcha. a very lower grade ebonite and so they aren't anywhere near the quality of um, the handmade stem material or the artisan right. stem material I mean they work just fine and I've made pipes with with preformed stems that you can kind of customize but uh, they just right. won't ever function quite the same way that the, uh, the other ones do. Yeah, I just know of um, some banjo inlays. People would use yeah. people would use plastics like uh, like I don't know, was it celluloid or something like cheap? It was almost like cheap plastics. They started using them in there, and it actually worked worked well. Yeah, and there's other materials you can make stems out of. You can make them out of bakelite. Antique bakelite is a big, uh, big one that people use. Oh yeah, mm. um, oh, nice. There's uh, some other acrylic stuff. Um, and then, you know, some guys even make wooden stems, you know, the guys that are making the more rustic, like long church warden, like Lord of the Rings, Gandalf right. type pipes. Some of those are yeah. like a, a stick that they, they drill out and that works too. Right. I was going to ask that. What's stopping people from using the uh, wood that you use the rest of the pipe in, like, like a clay pipe? Um, so you mean like using briar for a stem? Yeah. It would be extremely difficult for, to keep that from cracking and breaking, mm. Uh, mm, especially right. given that it's a uh, that it's a burl. You know, wood's strength is is in the long grain. In the short grain, you can snap it very easily, and so burls right, have right. so many grain change directions that I would imagine. I've seen a couple pipes that guys made with wooden stems, and I would imagine that at some point they break, uh, just because there's a lot of heat running through the pipe. And with yeah, the right. walls of a stem, you know, it just seems like it would be fraught with uh, with disaster and heart heartbreak, <laughs> waiting around every corner. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so real quick, I I pulled up pictures of the the turtle um, pipe. Now that outside the shell, is that the raw edge of of no, the on wood? That, on that pipe, what you're seeing is a sandblast. So ah. sandblasting is a very very popular way. There's two reasons people sandblast pipes. The cheaper factory-made pipes are sandblasted because the grain on the pipes isn't very nice or there's imperfections right. in the wood. Right. 
And so the sandblast can really hide a lot of the, you know, Briar, like I said, it grows underground. <coughs> and so there's a lot of bark inclusions and sand pits, and you know, occasionally you'll find a little pebble because the, the root just sort of grows around whatever dirt's down there. Right. Um, and so one of the heartbreaking things about piping is you can have a beautiful pipe that you're sanding and then all of a sudden you sand into a you know a bark inclusion or a, a pit void or something that you yeah. have yeah you have no idea it's there or when you drill in when you drill the tobacco chamber of a pipe there could be a huge gash in the side of it you know it's all mm -hmm. sort of luck of the draw um, so th but the other reason to do a sandblast is that uh, depending on what I can get into the sort of different cuts of briar if you want it's it's sort of a not super complicated, but there's different parts of the burl that yield different grains. But there right. is um, a certain part of the block that when you when you sandblast it, um, what you're blasting away is the softer part of the of the wood. Um, you know, there's there's soft elements and hard elements of the grain, and so the mm. sandblast will remove the softer elements and leave the hard ones uh, raised a little bit. <coughs> mm. And uh, what it does is it brings out the the ring grain is what it's called um, of, oh, of the briar, and so you yeah. almost it almost looks like waves coming down, and that yeah. those little waves yeah. are actually just the natural harder parts of that particular cut of briar. Uh, so right. done well, I I don't really sandblasting is sort of a <coughs> a divisive thing. Some people really love it, some people don't. I'm <laughs> not a huge fan of fully sandblasted pipes, but like. Partially sandblasted pipes really, really catch my eye, like the turtle has when you do it in sort of an artistic way like that. So, and yeah. I, I guess that's also personal feel. I mean, you're you're constantly have your hand on the pipe, constantly resting your hand. So some people just like the texture. I would, yep. I would assume. <laughs> I, I have a sandblasted pipe from um, that pipe maker friend of mine, Tyler Lane, that I had mentioned. Um, right. We traded, I made him some shelves for his humidor and he gave me a pipe, which I would have never been able to afford otherwise. Mm -hmm. And uh, <coughs> it's a sandblasted pipe, which I, I wouldn't ever have picked out on my own just because I don't I'm not naturally you know, drawn to sandblasted pipes. But I will right, say right. it's got such a nice feel, like it's got a little craggy feel to it, a nice grip, and, and I, mm. it's like my favorite smoking pipe. So. Uh, that's awesome. I, they they do have a certain amount of appeal for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you were you were mentioning earlier about the the different like um, aspects of a of a pipe that there's the different like smoothness of smoke and there's the moisture in the inside and all that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So how are you? You said you know with piping you're controlling that inside the pipe. How does how do you do that? Can you get into that a little bit? Sure. Um, so basically, the inside of the pipe is what makes it smoke the way it does, if that's not obvious. I mean, you could have a square block of briar that if it's drilled well and the stem's well made, even if it had no shaping to it, it would smoke like a $2,000 pipe, you know. So it, mm. it's all those in, in internal mechanics. <coughs> so to really, um, to really do it right, you need some substantial tooling that most people don't have when they first start, including me. I didn't mm. have what I needed. Uh, you need the biggest thing that you need is um, a machinist lathe, like a metalworking lathe, uh, mm. because you're working. You're you really are dealing with the thousandths of an inch um, tolerance when you're talking about these parts. So it 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 right. is almost like metalworking, but you're not working with metal, uh, which is yeah. kind of frustrating because wood and ebonite don't behave quite as rigidly as metal does. But um, mm. so the metal lathe is 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 essential because everything has to be square and true. Um, so basically, right. if you were to think about 
let's just take a, a straight pipe, you know, a, a pipe that is a 90 degree angle from the stem to the tobacco chamber because it's easier to think about. Um, right. right. Everything from the tobacco chamber coming down and from the stem going toward the tobacco chamber, everything meets up at the very center bottom of the tobacco chamber. So that's where all of your holes have to touch and they have to be perfect um, in order for the pipe to smoke well. So there's a, there's a point where you can sort of orient the block back and forth on the lathe. I have a special chuck that holds uh, briar. It's just for pipe making. And it has these right, two right. indexing pins that I, that I put right at the bottom of that hole. And so I can swing the pipe around and drill from any, any side and end up hitting mm -hmm. dead center of that hole. Um, so that's really important to get those holes lined up. Um, <coughs> the, the draft hole, which is what they would call the, the hole that comes out of the tobacco chamber toward the end of the stem and eventually leads to your mouth. Right. Um, all those parts need to be really, the transitions between like stem and wood and if there's any inlay or anything, they all need to be perfectly mm -hmm. smooth so that the smoke mm -hmm. isn't meeting any resistance. Uh, so those holes can't be off center from one another um, because what that does is the smoke hits those those sort of jagged edges and where mm -hmm. it hits them they, it starts swirling and when it swirls it cools and when it cools it turns into moisture and it ends up with what I refer to as the hell juice at the bottom of the pipe that you occasionally suck into your mouth and regret having started ever smoking a pipe before because it just tastes horrible. Um, gotcha. gotcha. Okay. So um, essentially what you're doing um, when you're when you're drilling there's about you know, there's probably six or seven drill bits you actually need just to drill those holes uh, to line mm. up the right way. Um, so basically, a tobacco chamber is usually about three quarters of an inch between three quarters and seven eighths for the most part. Um, right, right. And then the working your way up from the the draft hole towards your mouth that keeps getting smaller and smaller, you actually mm. use a tapered uh, drill bit when you're drilling the stem. Uh, the tapers down to almost nothing and then finish the drilling from the other side with a 16th inch bit and then you start filing the mouthpiece away. So it's a it's a pretty um, exacting process that once you have it down, drilling isn't the biggest problem in the world. It's, it's more that you need to have the tooling uh, to do it accurately and just repetitively uh, to be able to repeat those things every time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that a uh, metal aid helps with is to make sure that the joints between the joint, the uh, pipe and the stem, the, the stumble and the stem are at right angles to one another so that everything fits together nice and square. So that's kind of the short answer. There, there's a more nerdy version of how you drill. You know, <laughs> stuff, but, uh, that's good. I mean, just like, because as you're saying that like the, the hole that's going from the bottom of the tobacco chamber back to your mouth has to taper. And so how do you, how do you taper that? without without having any shelves or nicks or anything along the way without right. a tapered bit that you wouldn't be able to do that you know how do you make it smaller without a yeah. other than like with a tiny teeny tiny little like round file inside the hole <laughs> like yeah now i will say all of the filing that opens up that hole at the end of the bit uh, is done by hand with hand files right. like right. little tiny hand files and it's a huge right, pain right, right. in the butt <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> yeah i do that like with, you know uh, the there's a there's a very um, small tolerance of where when yeah. you clench your teeth down on a pipe you can tell whether it's too thick or not. Uh, there's ah. a very there's a specific comfort uh, sort of uh, diameter you know measurement there. 
And so I'm actually using like digital calipers to make sure by the thousandth mm -hmm. I'm getting down close to where I want to be with the with the quench zone. Um, and that's why that tapered bit is so important because where you're biting down on the pipe, there's very little material between your teeth and, and the, right. the hole because you're getting it really skinny. Um, so yeah, there is a certain amount of, uh, you just have to do it over and over again. And I, you know, I ruined a lot of stems um, <laughs> when I was learning <laughs> and uh, it was very frustrating. But. Uh, so are you drilling that hole out from like, uh, is it is it, when you drill it, it's the reverse. So you're drilling it from the pipe side to the mouth right. side. So, so you're, you're drilling, way. when you're working with the stem, you're drilling from, yeah, from the pipe side. Basically, there's a tenon on the end of the stem that fits into a mortise that's on the pipe. Mm. Uh, right. For those people that aren't familiar with woodworking, mortise and tenon is just like with plumbing, it's the male and female, you know, fitting. Right. So right. The, the stem would have a male fitting that fits into the female fitting of the pipe. Uh, so you're drilling in through that, the tenon of the stem from the pipe side and I everybody does it a little bit differently uh, I stop with about three-eighths of an inch left to the end of the stem and then I flip it mm. end for end uh, or I can because I have my machinist lathe I can actually do this all from one end but um, before I'd had but I had to flip it but I use a very long thin 16th inch bit that finishes the cut then and pops mm. out the end of the uh, the mouthpiece and that way it's small enough that when I'm shaping the mouthpiece I can you know, open it up and widen it up a little bit. Um, right. Now, right. actually, the most important part, uh, if you want to get a little bit more in the weeds with the nerdy stuff, the most important <laughs> thing that sets apart a factory-made pipe from a uh, like an artisan pipe uh, is that factory-made pipes they drill that sixteenth-inch hole um, through the end of the bit, and then they have a machine that cuts like a little square slot on the other side. So that mm -hmm. it looks like you know that traditional sort of thin line with the mouthpiece if you've looked at a pipe before um, mm -hmm. but what you're looking at is just a square slot with one hole in the center of it uh, on yeah. on artisan made pipes the the way to make smoke flow freely and uh, to flow nice and cool and not have any turbulence in it uh, those the the end of the pipe that you have your mouth on is actually funneled down right, toward right. that tapered end of the bit, or tapered end of mm -hmm. the hole. Mm -hmm. So ideally what you want, you can achieve this with varying levels of success based on your experience. Ideally you want the surface area of the opening, you know, the little slot, it's called the button, uh, right, at the right. end of the pipe to match the surface area of the round hole inside the stem so that the smoke flows out nice and freely. And if you've done it right, you can actually test it by blowing smoke into the uh, tenon end of a stem, and if it comes mm -hmm. out in sort of a V shape, uh, that's how you know you've achieved a nice funnel. Um, and uh, it really does, it makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, and I, I know that it sounds crazy that it would make a difference. It makes a huge difference in the quality of the smoke. And I've actually taken, for some friends, I've taken factory made pipes that they have, and I've just opened up the stem with that funneling method and it completely changes the smoking experience mm. in the pipe. So that that's one of those little things that makes it more expensive because it takes a lot of time uh, right, for yeah, an artisan yeah. pipe. But yeah, there's a lot of really like super nerdy stuff about pipes that not many people would find fascinating, but that are really important. And I'm sure it's that way with knives too, you know? Oh yeah, Talking yeah, about micro bevels and all that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's all all the fit and finish stuff. It's all that final stuff, all the little things that you don't notice until you see one that's done really well, and you start noticing exactly. all that exactly. stuff. Yeah. Some people want to know how that's done. Other people just don't really want to know how the omelet was made, and they just want to pick it up and smoke it, which is fine too. But uh, right. I find the I find the minutia, like getting lost in the minutia, really really interesting. And yeah. um, I like attention to detail, and and so this affords me the ability to sort of indulge that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like, it's almost like a, a engineering clockwork thing. It's an extra bit to it that is uh, a, a really uh, nice once you get it. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it is. It once is that really once that clock starts ticking. That's right. That's yeah. right. You got it. You got it. So you have um, are you are you working out of your shop um, in Lebanon or are you working out of your house when you're doing your pipes? So I've I've had three different locations where I've done pipe work. I, initially, I was working all out of my wood shop in Lancaster City. Okay. Uh, I sort of set up a rudimentary pipe shop in there, but I didn't have a metal lathe at that point. I was actually working on a little tiny jeweler's lathe. Um, oh. And it was a miserable experience because <laughs> it just—it was really difficult to be accurate. Um, right. Then I bought a big lathe, and I actually have that set up. Um, part of the year, I work at a greenhouse as a grower, and mm. um, I have it actually set up there in sort of the back corner. <laughs> nice. But I'm currently oh, nice. framing a shop at my house um, where I'm finally going to park my—I call it my fourth child, my big machinist <laughs> lathe from the 1950s. It's a beauty. Nice. And, what type of lathe um, is it? Um, it's a Logan, <coughs> old 1950s Logan. I think it weighs awesome. like 850 pounds Ooh. or something. Nice. It's, uh, nice. It looks like it came out of a submarine. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I just I like I like just staring kind of a small at one. it. What yeah. <laughs> I said it, in the in the grand scheme of lathes, that's like that's a smaller that's a smaller one, 800. Yeah. You know, yeah, <laughs> like exactly. there's like 15, yeah. 2,000, 3,000 pound lathes, but yeah, no, that's exactly. that's awesome. Those old. It's big enough so for what I need. But yeah, so I'll 100%. have a. Um, I'll have a shop here at the house finally. It's been like my goal for almost a decade now to have that right. so that I can, in the evenings, you know, at my own pace do stuff. It's difficult to be sort of spread yeah. out all over the place and actually get things done. So as I'm easing into my 40th year here, I'm finally achieving that working goal and uh, hopefully my pipe <laughs> output will dramatically increase now that I, I'll have a working space at home. So that's that's the goal. That's awesome. So you said you're that's it's in the works right now, you're building that shop? It's all framed up, and I actually I poured a separate concrete pad just for my lathe, uh, so that it would be perfectly level and um, nice. nice and stable. Sweet. And uh, I'm, I promised my daughter that I would build her a bedroom in our basement. So that's the carrot dangling out in front of me right now that I have to finish <laughs> her bedroom before I work on my shop anymore. So it's framed <laughs> and wired, and everything's ready to go. I just need to drywall and then outfit it, and I'll be I'll be rocking and rolling, which is very. Exciting. Is that is that a, a separate? Uh, building on your property or is it attached to your house it's in our garage so i okay. uh i took over about a third of our garage and framed gotcha. out a space for myself um we decided you know we don't really park a car in there anyway it's just sort of a landing zone for all my kids crap so i figured yeah eh, i can <laughs> shorten that space a little bit and use it for something else so yeah. um yeah that it's third is going to turn into a half and then three that's quarters right, that's, and right. then <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. you just got to get your don't foot in the door a little bit and soon enough my long it's plan. all you, you can't give this away if my wife listens <laughs> to this that's you're giving away my plan man come on <laughs> 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 yeah I, I think it's going to be enough space for me for now but uh yeah, yeah it, it's going to be great i'm very excited that's awesome man um so 
I also I'm curious about your other shop too. You said you had your your furniture shop is a two story shop or the one that you're working in. So you're you're not working there that often anymore. You're not doing a ton of custom furniture these not days. Not a ton. I have a couple projects people want me to do, but it's it's just been difficult to get out there um, right. with other things that I have going on. But yeah, I still have a fully I still have access to a fully furnished wood shop, which seems sad to not be using it more. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, it's a great place. I mean, all my friends who sort of want to dabble in woodworking really get excited when they see when they see the shop because right, right. it's sort of everything that you need right in front of you. But yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think all of us as makers go through waves of inspiration and different things. I mean, I'm right now. I'm sitting in my studio on the first floor of my house, surrounded by paintings and all my art supplies. And I just don't do a ton of painting or like fine art anymore. I just I have it all here. It's all ready to be used. And I got tons. I have thousands of dollars worth of supplies around me. And, and you know, my I'm just drawn down to the shop, down into my wood shop in my basement and making knives and making, you know, tools and wooden stuff. You know, just woodworking, metalworking, blacksmithing. It just, you know, I think, like I said, it just kind of goes in waves. You know, you can't. You know, I, sometimes I feel guilty. I'm like, I should be doing more painting. You know, I've done that's that's what my like love was for such a long time. But you know, yeah. I'm I'm getting that that same inspiration and that same like creative output in the other things I'm doing. So exactly, I, you know, mo most of the really interesting people I know uh, have a hard time staying with just one thing. You know, there, mm -hmm. there's a myriad yeah. of things that interest them and. Focus is important for sure because it enables you to get things done, and you know we need to accomplish things. But um, you know they're they're also without getting too philosophical about it. I think it's important to follow the muse to a certain extent, mm. and um, yeah. and be okay with the fact that, uh, like you said, there's seasons for stuff. And um, when I was making furniture full time, it was all I wanted to do. And uh, yeah. as that sort of faded a bit as I had kids and I didn't have as much time to dedicate to it you know and pipes entered entered my life I I found that that was a way to sort of satiate that desire uh fulfilled yeah. it's great it's the same scratch scratch the same itch that's the expression that's what right, I was looking for right yeah. um <laughs> and you know I think it makes you more well-rounded you know I, I bet uh yeah when you when you come back to painting you'll find attitudes and perspectives you didn't have before and yeah uh, mm. I think yeah. that's important to stay inspired um yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's actually one of the reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I that's I was gonna say that's actually one of the reasons why I that's that is the 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 number one thing of why I like teaching is because of that that kind of cyclical inspiration that happens from teaching other people's about uh, other people about things and then getting inspiration from them learning and getting that joy. Like that is it's a hundred percent the the best thing that I like about teaching is that like seeing people be inspired and getting inspiration from that. So, you know, like always learning new things and then pushing other people to learn things. And then when you see that spark, you know, and you see they, they're like, oh, this is so good. Or they see something that you see them get it. And it just makes me want to go and do more things. Like that's, that's a hundred percent why I like teaching and the, you know, the best, there's all sorts of things I could tell you why I don't like teaching, but that's the one thing that I definitely love teaching about. <laughs> well, and I mean, from the student's perspective, you know, my favorite teachers were the ones who it was obvious that, you know, first of all, they actually wanted to be there because there's right, plenty of yep. teachers who had sort of clocked out, but, and mm -hmm. also, you know, teachers who it's obvious that, you know, they're still learning too, and that they're, they're getting something out of being with students and, you know, gaining yeah. excitement from that atmosphere. I think that's awesome. 
I can I yeah. I envy your students. I think you'd be an awesome teacher to have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I do. I really enjoy teaching. And the same thing. I've had like my absolute favorite teachers were the ones where I could tell that they were they were enjoying teaching as much as they were you know as much as it was a job for them. They were really being inspired by what they were doing, what they were talking about, and they loved it. And yeah. that was always my number one like you know goal as a teacher was to to be able to do something that I loved and tell people about it and um and I think that's why at least in my opinion why I think our YouTube channel has done relatively well and grown with the success that it has is because I I I feel that way when I'm teaching and so it's nice I think I kind of come across that way when I'm talking about the work cuz I do enjoy it so it's like trying to give other people that same type of uh joy from what they create absolutely absolutely there's a um I think a fear people have of doing that quick turn to something else and like they think they're abandoning whatever they had before but right yeah i I don't there's a uh here's an extra quote for people that i that i like it's uh walt whitman it's uh do i contradict myself very way very well then i contradict myself i am large i contain multitudes i like that it's like it's a little cheeky it's like yeah so fine i said that I? I, i said that before but now i'm switching my view I'm large, I contain multitudes. So I think a lot of people contain multitudes. They have a lot of different interests. You shouldn't be afraid to switch it up if, like you said before, if you have a muse steering you in one direction. Sure. Right. You know, I, I had a uh, another quote for you that sort of changed the course of my life. Uh, when, I, when I was getting ready to graduate, from, I think I had graduated from college, and um, – had this degree in history, and I did well in school. I, I loved school, I worked really hard, and I was always a good student, uh, tried to be conscientious. And um, my dad uh, you know, was a minister and very theologically minded and just very academic, and, and those were the teachers I was drawn to, were people that were sort of in this world of academia, and that's where I always saw myself landing. And right. Um, right. a college professor of mine, uh, I ended up going fishing with a bunch of years uh, after I graduated and um, with a group of guys. And I was, I was trying to decide whether I wanted to think about grad school or to leave this construction job that I thought was going to be sort of a one-year stint mm. uh, until I figured out what I wanted to do. It ended up being three and a half years, and I learned you know, a tremendous amount. But when I was thinking about leaving there and becoming a professional woodworker, it was sort of this very... Uh, it was a stark change from where I saw my life going a few years before that. And I, I wasn't sure if I was, you know, this, this uh, internal battle between white collar, blue collar, or working with your hands and working with your brain. And, you right. know, I don't anymore think that those things are separate. But back then I had a much more divided mm-hmm. view of those types of things. Yeah. And, and so he, we were fishing together and, and he had listened to me ramble on for about two hours, uh, just mm-hmm. sort of whining about, <laughs> am I wasting my brain? Am I, you know, all these <laughs> things. And, and uh, he just sort of cut me off at one point and he said, look, Jesse, the kingdom of God needs woodworkers too. And you can fulfill your purpose doing the thing that you're passionate about. Mm. And it was like a light switch just turned on and I was, I felt liberated to pursue this thing that I was feeling pulled toward and Mm. you know I hope everybody gets to experience that at some point in their life for their vocation because uh, you know I you know that old 
that, that old quote about you never actually work if you enjoy what you do. You don't have a work right. a day in your life. And right. I, you know, I've spent the better part of my adult life doing things that I enjoy uh, and happen to be paid for them. And um, I, I, I sure hope people can chase that. <laughs> you know, yeah. even, if it's on, <laughs> even if it's on the side, I, if you've got something you can do as a hobby um, that can sort of satiate that that desire um right i think that's just great that's being self-aware enough to know that stuff is really important yeah absolutely and uh, i think a lot of that is perspective like your dad said you know it's it's about your perspective that like what and like you were saying you know you had kind of that uh, single-minded mindset of like am i going to be am i am i a brain person or my hands person right but it's it's about that perspective and i got another quote for you this actually came (laughs) from one of my favorite teachers in grad school quote battle (laughs) <laughs> and uh i was i was in a uh, drawing class um so with my grad program i was getting my master's in painting and we had there were uh, three of us in my year and four of us in four in the year above me so it's a two-year program and uh, we would do drawing classes with the underclassmen because it, we wouldn't just do drawing classes with just the you know just the grad students so we would have regular drawing classes and one of my one of my teachers was in there and he was leading the class and uh, we had a, a model, a male model, who had this oh, like nice. kind of big, big afro, <laughs> <laughs> a male model, <laughs> and uh, and he had he had a really large nose, um, and my teacher kind of walks up and he's looking at him and he's like, look at this nose, like you guys got to draw this. Look how beautiful. Look at this. It's such a big beak of a nose. It's so <laughs> beautiful. Like, and, and his joy over what he was seeing and his love of this, like the visuals of this, it, it like just flipped the switch in my head. That was like, it's all about perspective. You know, you can, you, anyone can make anything sound amazing. If, if their, their perspective of it is amazing. You know, like he, he honestly loved the, the profile and the shape of this nose because he knew that it would make a really beautiful and dynamic drawing, you know? (laughs) So it was like, and I was like, man, what a great way you can, a teacher can bring light to anything and make it sound amazing if your perspective is there. Right. And it's, and you can give someone that like joy and that confidence, you know, I'm sure maybe that guy has felt like self-confident conscious about his nose over the years. Who knows? I mean, he was, he was a model in a class, so it like, it didn't, Obviously, he didn't really care because he was there, you know, posing in front of people. But, but who knows, you know? And maybe, maybe that one comment changed his perspective on it for his life. You know, he's like, "I've got this like awesome nose." You know, who else <laughs> got a nose like me? You know? I like, was told it's a beautiful <laughs> nose by a professor. So <laughs> exactly, listen up. <laughs> he has a degree in noses. <laughs> Schnoz. <laughs> but it's that same thing. It's that perspective of like, you know what does it mean to you? You know, is it, is it beautiful or is it, is it, is it like, you know, a hump on your back? <laughs> like it's, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, yeah. What do you want to do? If, if you want to do something, if that's what you're passionate about, then, then that's what it should be to you. And I think, you know, there's been a definite shift in the past. Well, just in my lifetime, um, yeah. that is more, that treats the trades more admirably than, than it used to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think there's a lot of value in knowing how to do something, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, I I don't I don't feel the same stigma anymore that there used to be with like being associated with like if you're a welder or like you right. know that used to be like oh you couldn't couldn't go to grad school or like you couldn't go to college now it's like right well I'm a welder and I'm I'm making 150 grand a year doing what I love doing you know and right, it's exactly. like yeah. people <laughs> people that people that can specialize in something and work with their hands I feel like 
the nobility is slowly being restored uh, to that yeah. stuff. I, you guys know who Mike Rowe is? He's a, he's a Maryland yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Dirty Jobs. Yeah, 100%. His, yep. his big push for, yeah, recognizing people that have skills and, and encouraging yeah. people to pursue, uh, you know, trade school if that's what, if that's what they want to do. I think yeah. that's beautiful. Like, it's great. Yeah, no, he, he's great, right? He's, he's always like, what do you mean there's a shortage of jobs? There's so many jobs yeah. open. You just got to go and yeah. get, to, get to work. Exactly. Yeah, he's, he's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jess, I want you to, uh, can you tell us, so when we have guests on, uh, we like to ask them to tell us a disaster story. Now, the reason why we do that is because as we're talking, you know, we're all makers and everyone, everyone has this kind of, um, you start out, you look to like the people who are ahead of you and you know, they're, they're, they've done it and they're, they're ahead of the game and they never make any mistakes. But the, the, the reality is that we all make mistakes and we all have disasters. It's just if you push forward or whatever it is. So could you tell us one of your disaster stories? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've always said to whoever will listen that if people could be in my shop watching me work, they wouldn't pay me to make furniture for them because it's just <laughs> like one stream of mess-ups after another. And uh, oftentimes good things come out of that. Like you said at the beginning, we'll go yeah. full circle back here. and say The mistakes end up being being beautiful things. But um, yeah. <laughs> I, ha I, have, I have a lot of furniture mess-ups that involved glue-ups gone wrong because uh, wood glue is a great material right mm -hmm. up until it's not and it just binds things up but i will try and stay more <laughs> on point with pipe stuff uh i had uh like i said i've ruined a lot of stems um over the mm -hmm. years and it just like it just about makes me lose my salvation every time it happens like it is <laughs> just this <laughs> like between the cost and the time it, it's like just watching life wither away before you and the worst one oh. that i had <coughs> i um there's another material you can make pipes out of. Uh, it's called morta. Basically, it's white oak that's been submerged in a peat bog. Uh, and it's like okay. the step right before petrification. So it turns jet black, and it's really hard. And um, as, a, as a cool side note, the place I get it from uh, in the Ukraine guarantees that it's 5,000 years old. So you can have a pipe uh, made out of a 5,000-year-old tree, which is awesome. Ooh, anyway. Oak. Yeah. I make, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. So I yep. was making a pipe out of Morta, and I was working on the stem, and I thought it would be cool to uh, make the tenon of the stem out of this white material called Delrin, which is, uh, it's yep. basically like Teflon, essentially. I don't know if you guys have worked with Delrin before, but it's a really great no, material know, yeah, for yeah. tenons because it slides in and out of the pipe very easily, <coughs> and it's right. not affected yep. by heat. So. I made this black stem with a white tenon, <coughs> and you have to obviously glue the tenon into the stem so that the tenon was glued in about a half inch into the stem uh, mm -hmm. where you couldn't see it. <coughs> so I finished the pipe, got it bent, it was for a friend of mine, and it's all nice and shiny and I thought to myself, I, I'm looking at the curve of the stem and I thought, I, I should take just a little bit more off just to get mm. that curve perfect. And literally the first swipe with my file, I broke through the stem oh. and into the white into the white Delrin. And so there was this big chunk of white crap in my perfectly polished black stem. Oh. And I, I just about broke down into tears. Like it, it was a, that was the only time I've had a finished pipe go bad. And oh, um, 
that was that was pretty heartbreaking. It was because mm. <laughs> there's just nothing you can do. That's that's the definition of a disaster, right? There's no yeah, going back. It's, it's just, uh, <laughs> but you know, those things, it's good to eat a little humble pie every now and then. <laughs> um, like you said, it, it really is true. The more the more guys I've met that that make things, um, mistakes. Obviously, you get better as you go along, and the things that you do more often, you get better at and more efficient at. But um, mm. mistakes just happen all the time, and I'm. Yeah. It's it's just better to be open about it, and instead of pretending that you've got it all going on and never make a mistake, because really, right, right. Um, a lot of growth happens through failure, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know. A lot of swearing happens through failure, too, but a lot of growth as well. <laughs> All that, the mistakes and the swearing happen in private. No one has to know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Although, I will say, now that I'm thinking about this, my my, my uh, new pipe shop is going to be adjacent to my kid's bedroom, so they might right, know exactly. a side of me that they don't know. A lot of, a lot of sound <laughs> soundproofing. Yeah. Yeah. that sounds angry <laughs> <laughs> the music just turns up in the shop mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, the mm-hmm. music's up again <laughs> so with with that pipe uh did you were are you able to pull the stem off and like remake the stem or so what what i actually ended up doing with that was i a friend of mine ended up taking it who didn't mind he just wanted a pipe and uh, didn't right. mind the it, it was still perfectly functional it was just an right right thing but uh, it made gotcha. it go from being a, a nice, valuable pipe to a, a very inexpensive pipe. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I know, that's, that's what I was thinking. I was like, was that that's one that you just like put on the shelf in your house, and you're like, oh, yeah. this is the one that I'm going to smoke out of. On, on. I was planning on keeping it, but he, he sort of was begging for a pipe, and so I just basically gave it to him. And, uh, All right. Yeah, it was uh, – <laughs> I, I could have made a new stem, but my spirit was broken substantially at that point. I just didn't <laughs> have it in me to go for it. So <laughs> right. Yeah. The next project. <laughs> mm. Sorry, my my battery, my laptop battery just was like acting funky. All right, we're back. <laughs> I was like, oh no, my battery. I just plugged it back in. We're good. All right. Uh, so at this point, we like to do some recommendations at the end of the podcast. Um, Jesse, we'll let you start. Do you have some something you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Uh, well, I would definitely recommend that anyone who's interested in woodworking reads The Soul of the Tree, that the book we had been talking yeah. about earlier by George Nakashima. It's a very cerebral look, uh, maybe overly romantic to some people, but it really gets into a lot of the... Um, well, you know, sort of the muse type stuff that we were talking about, and, yeah. and the fact that uh, sort of examines the fact that trees don't want to be furniture. You kind of have to fight them all the way, and they <laughs> they like to move and crack and that sort of stuff. But when you try to when you try to uh, balance the scales a bit and allow wood to do the things that it wants to do, um, mm-hmm. a lot of good stuff happens. I learned a lot from that book, just from like a philosophical a philo- philosophical approach to woodworking. Uh, right. I would definitely right. recommend that book. Um, as far as some eye candy to look at, um, if you there's a that Sam Maloof that we had talked about earlier as well with his rocking chair, take a look at some of his stuff and and the things he did with uh, seamless joinery and flowing joints and that sort of stuff. I really yeah, yep. there's there's something very sculptural to his work <coughs> that I find very inspiring. Um, and there's, you know, if you like looking at pipes, there's a lot of a lot of really good pipe makers on Instagram uh, that are doing some really phenomenal things. Um, 
I'll just highlight two that I enjoy, um, and then I'll I'll be done. Um, there's one guy out in California. His name's Jay Allen, and uh, he's got a an aggressive online presence, and um, you can find his stuff on Instagram. Uh, a lot of classic shapes, but he does really interesting things with them. And then one of my favorites is a guy that I love to hate. He's annoyingly young for as good as he is. Uh, his, his, name's, his name is Micah Kreider. Uh, he's out in Montana. I've never met him or talked to him, but I'm, I'm a fan of his stuff. He goes by the Yeti. That's his, uh, we talked about single names. He's the Yeti. Um, uh, and I think his, his Instagram is just Yeti or Yeti Pipes or something. Just look that up, you'll find gotcha. it. And he does really cool, um, he, he's become a master. I think he's only in his early 30s at this point, and mm -hmm. I, I hate him and also love him at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, uh, I, like, I like looking at other people's work. I find it very inspiring. And, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, so those are guys that I enjoy. I enjoy following. Awesome. Right on. Um, yeah, there are there are plenty of people I could list in the same type of same boat where like young people coming up or just somebody like how could how could you be that good how could you do it that consistently who has that time what are you doing don't you have <laughs> a life what are you doing? come I'm, on I'm, like the I'm rest of us I'm convinced there's some wizards out there who have figured out to suck more than 24 hours out of a day I think that, that <laughs> exactly. might be what's, what's happening yeah well if yeah. you've ever um, learned to play an instrument you know there's just some people who have it and some people who do not at all. Yep, you got that right. You got it. <laughs> and for right, those yeah. of us that don't have it, it's because it's incredibly depressing. <laughs> 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 I will say, actually, when Devin was in high school and he got a guitar, and we used to have like I was in college and he was in high school, and so I, for a couple of years we were, I was living at the house, and uh, Devin picked up on the guitar really quickly, and we would we would just have the, have the guitars out. My dad's guitar would be out and stuff. We'd play and. And he just picked up and like went right past me on skill wise really quickly, and I was like, "Damn it! Oh, you're, you're <laughs> what is going? Yeah, yeah right, really exactly. Happy for you. Awesome. <laughs> Great. <laughs> which I, I have a lot of but, good memories yeah. of Uncle Scott playing guitar. Man, I, I always yeah. enjoyed listening to him play when we got together. And which yeah, yeah, which he he learned from yeah. uh from Uncle Dick. Yeah, I, yep. my dad would, yep. would break out the guitar and do the Billboard song every now and then, and you know all these uh, <laughs> little things that he'd do. But yeah, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go next, and this is totally off subject, but I was listening to the record today, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, um, right. the movie, I guess I can, I'll recommend the soundtrack of American Graffiti if you haven't seen it. Um, that's uh. Star Wars famous George Lucas. That was one of his movies early on. Um, and he did it, I think it's early 70s. And it's like a 50s film. Like these kids oh, right cruising the town right. back and forth. But the only soundtrack they used was 50s, like rockabilly rock and roll. And in, in the movie, the soundtrack would only play if someone was in a car or there was a radio nearby. And it's like it's all night. Oh, nice. It's all night. You have like Wolfman Jack, and he's the DJ, and he's playing all that type of music because that's what uh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, what they remember doing in the fifties, is cruising up and down and hearing all this great music. So that's like the backbone of the movie. It's really good. Um, so watch the movie if you haven't seen it. But the soundtrack, 
for like 50s rock and roll is just like the greatest hits. And uh, I was listening to it today, making uh, dinner and stuff, and it's fantastic. So there's your random uh, recommendation for the week. Nice. <laughs> Devin, Devin loves doing recommendations that have nothing to do with anything that we talk about <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> but, you know, it's good. It's a good dichotomy, right? We're getting close to like 100 episodes now. You know, I'm, I'm out of things. <laughs> you got to start recommending like your favorite pasta. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good. It's like everyday things. You're always like each week you're like, I just got this cool thing. That's what I'm recommending. <laughs> like, check it out. It's awesome. But, you know, people love that too. Um, my recommendation for the week is uh, Craig DeChico. Mm, and mm-hmm. uh, Craig, we actually met at um, Maker Camp. He set up, uh, camped right next to us in the in the 200-foot square camping lot that we were in <laughs> he had his pickup truck and slept right in the back of it but um craig's a woodworker he has uh the the chico wood shop um on instagram he's at the chico wood shop and uh he does some really beautiful work he does some um some cool live edge stuff but a, kind of a good mixture with um i would say live edge with all you know also mixed with other styles of woodworking so it's not just the kind of what people see now as the kind of the the um the popular live edge stuff so he does a good job of mixing that with kind of contemporary and uh and, and like classic woodworking uh techniques so really beautiful stuff does some really cool um wood turning and um yeah just really really nice work uh nice like i maybe i don't know i don't i don't know i i love woodworking but i have but i don't know the like terminology for all the different time periods like i would with art you know but um but yeah just some really beautiful stuff and like i said it kind of like modern aspects but also contemporary things and just a good mix of, of both things so uh check him out on instagram again that's craig DeChico DeChico and his uh instagram is at DeChico underscore woodshop and you'll see craig a lot in the upcoming video i'm pretty much done dust i feel like we're just gonna do a kind of a voiceover thing Right. Um, for the video, cool. but that's all put together for the uh, Maker Camp video. And like I yeah. said, he's all over it. <laughs> he's like, yeah, like, yeah, he's a good yeah. dude. <laughs> we hung out a lot with Craig for a little bit. A lot, lot of the uh, timber framing uh, building footage he's in because he was right yeah. there in it. Right on. All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. This is a pleasure and a blast. This is a great And although it took us uh, quite a while to get here, but we're here. (laughs) We've done it now. We made it. We did. (laughs) (laughs) It was like multiple times of us trying to get down and not working at it. But I was like, I honestly... I couldn't have made it up how like crazy this has happened every time like we have yeah, an opportunity where two of us are good. Yeah, Devin's there. power yeah. went out once. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember but, that. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a blast and um it's just like the the whole everything you've done is just fascinating, but the the pipe stuff is just way more fascinating than I could than I could have imagined. It's super cool. It's so, so much fun to talk to you um, about it. I'm so. glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you yeah, enjoyed man, it. Thank you so much. When, when, and for days, everybody listening boys up here to make a fight. Yeah, heck yeah, absolutely. No, it'd be awesome. And you know, likewise come down here and check out the shop and do some nice love stuff. Do something to carve with so get some hand knife. Absolutely. All right everybody, well thank you all so much for listening. Uh please make sure that you go and check out Jesse. Jesse, where can they find you again on social media's websites, things like that? 
Uh, pretty much at this point, mostly just on Instagram, uh, an occasional post on Instagram. My uh, companion pipes is the name of my business, and so you can find that pretty easily. And if you want to see some of the more, you know, sort of household furniture that I've made over the years, there's some pretty interesting pieces on my website. It's Jesse D as in Daniel, jessedohara.com. Gotcha. Awesome. And um, what's the name of the store that you uh, that you sell your pipes through? Oh, uh, yeah. There's a very cool store down in Lancaster City. They sell, you know, all American-made, local as much as possible. Uh, and the store is called Ellicott and Company. Um, you can cool. find that easily. They're they're much more savvy about being on social media than I am, and uh, <laughs> very very cool guys that own that place. Very good, very very good guys. Yeah, I saw. And, uh, awesome. I, I saw some pictures of the store. It is the manliest looking store you could think of. It's great. Oh yeah, You're, when you walk in, regardless of your gender, tr- chest hair just sprouts immediately. <laughs> uh, it, it has that effect on you. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. Nice. <laughs> 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 All right, everybody. So, yeah, definitely go and uh, check out Jesse's work. It's awesome. I've been following along with everything you've been doing for, you know, a bunch of years. So, super awesome to talk to you about it. And, uh, and everybody, if you uh, if you want to see what Devin and I are doing, you can follow us both on Instagram at The Art of Craftsmanship and The Art of Camera Guy. And uh, like Devin said, we'll be coming out with the next video shortly, getting back on the uh, video train. Yeah. And if you want to see some of our stuff, head over to uh, YouTube and check us out, The Art of Craftsmanship on YouTube. And lastly, if you feel like you've gotten something out of what you're listening to and you want to support us, we really, really appreciate the support, you can go over to patreon.com slash The Art of Craftsmanship and support us there. So, all right, everybody, thank you all so much for listening. It's a pleasure and a blast, and we will have more guests on more often. I've got a whole bunch of people lined up, like I keep saying, but honestly, I do. <laughs> Jesse, it was a pleasure. <laughs> it, was, it was the best. Thanks, guys. All right. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.